Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. ...words of men and women. The reason is that in the face of death, what a person is often comes clearly to the surface and is reflected in their speech. Let me give you a few examples to give you an idea of what I mean. First, there are fearful last words. Give me one second here, sorry. The last thing Elizabeth I said was, all my possessions for one moment of time. Sigmund Freud's were, the meager satisfaction that man can extract from reality leaves him starving. Philip III, King of France's final words are chilling. He said, what an account I shall have to give of myself to God. How I should have liked to live otherwise than the way that I lived. James Dean's last words were, my fun days are over. Then you have philosophical last words. Socrates had these hopeless last words when he said, All of the wisdom of this world is but a tiny raft upon which we must set sail when we leave this earth. If only there were a firmer foundation upon which to sail, perhaps some divine word. Aldous Huxley said, it is a bit embarrassing to have been concerned with the human problem all one's life and find at the end that one has no more to offer by way of advice than just try to be a little bit more kind. Napoleon said, I marvel that where the amb- ambitious dreamers of myself and of Alexander and of Caesar have vanished into thin air, but Jesus, a Judean peasant, should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. But sometimes people don't have time to wax eloquently with philosophical last words. Listen to these who didn't realize that what they just said would be their last words. H.G. Wells' final words were, Go away, I'm all right. During the heat of battle in 1864, General John Sedgwick boasted, They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Bing Crosby said, that was a great game of golf, and then collapsed with a massive heart attack. Douglas Fairbanks Sr. must have been surprised since his last words were, I've never felt better. Jesse James said, it's awfully hot today, but not probably as hot as it was about to be if you catch my drift. Oscar Wilde's final statement was, my wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One of the other of us have to go. I guess the moral of that is never pick a fight with wallpaper. But thankfully, some last words are full of assurance of salvation and the hope to come. Jonathan Edwards were, trust in God and you shall have nothing to fear. John Owen said, I'm going to him whom my soul loveth or rather who has loved me with an everlasting love, which is the sole ground of all my consolation. D.L. Moody said, I see earth receding and heaven is opening. God is calling me. Martin Luther's final words are full of confidence when he said, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O God of truth. John Milton's were, Death is the great key that opens the palace of eternity. Charles Dickens said, 
I commit my soul to the mercy of God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I exhort my dear children humbly to try and guide themselves by the teaching of the New Testament. And finally, the great hymn writer Isaac Watts said, It is a great mercy that I have no manner of fear or dread of death. I could, if God please, lay my head back and die without terror this very afternoon. This morning, we're going to look at the final words of Jesus when he triumphantly said, It is finished. Verse 19, please. Now, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. Rather, he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. We are told that Pilate's inscription was in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. What significance is there in that? Just this. Hebrew was the theological language, Greek the intellectual language, and Latin the political language. And so let those who view things theologically, let those who view things intellectually, and let those who view things politically know this. Jesus is king over all of those things. And it also teaches us that what he did on the cross he did for the entire world. Let us hear every word of this challenge from George McLeod, a Scottish clergyman, who reminds us where the cross of Christ should be placed. He writes, We can't change this world from a distance. I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. On the town garbage heap, at a crossroad so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and Latin and in Greek. At the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because this is where the church should be and what church should be about. Well, of course, the chief priests didn't like this, and they asked Pilate to change the inscription to, Jesus only said that he was the king of the Jews. But it seems that Pilate finally had a burst of testosterone and declared, what I have written, I have written. So you're just going to have to deal with it. I added that last part, but that's what the sentiment is. Look at verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to each soldier, and the tunic also, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Therefore the soldiers did these things. According to Exodus chapter 28, the high priest's robe was to be made of one material. And so Jesus being the great high priest, his robe was seamless as well. But don't miss this one part. With a man suffering excruciating pain right above their heads, 
these soldiers are so hardened and so callous that they are gambling for the man's tunic, completely oblivious to his agony. It is easy to become desensitized. We daily view violence as we say, past the mashed potatoes. As Christians, we must steel ourselves against this. Christ's passion was real. Now, true, we should not become with a morbid preoccupation with the gore of the cross. Still, Christ's agony can never become a matter of just dispassionate interest. His physical sufferings has been and always will be a window through which we can see the greater agony as he bore the sins of the world. But if we aren't guarded, we too can become callous to those around us while assuring ourselves that we are still holy. Over the years, I've met some Christians who are so proud of their holy living, they may say, why, brother, I've never touched tobacco or even drank non-alcoholic beer. And I've never played so much as Uno or gone to see a movie, not even Bambi. Nor have my feet never tapped to a lively tune. And yet that very same person can cut other Christians to shreds with their tongues. They don't feel guilty in the least that they have committed verbal homicide and performed a character assassination. That's still a danger for us this morning. We need to continually guard our hearts against self-deception. As I have admitted before, I would have been a tremendous Pharisee left to myself. Do you know what else this teaches us? The cross always reveals men and women as they truly are. It reveals the soldier's nature, the nature of the crowds, that of the faithful women and John who were all in Jerusalem at this period. And it reveals our hearts as well. We cannot be hypocrites before the cross. It is too great. Its scope is too universal. So what does the cross show us to be this morning? Does it show us to be a sinner without hope and under condemnation because we have no part in the Savior? Or does it show us to be his follower? God grant that if you have not done so, you might find him as Savior and begin to follow him as your rightful king this very morning. Because nothing or no one on this earth can ever satisfy your soul. In preparing for this, I came across what is called the prayer of the materialist. See what you think. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Keurig machine to keep. I pray my stocks are on the, wa- on the rise and that my analyst is always wise. That all the wine I sip is white and that my hot tub is watertight. That racquetball won't get too tough and that all my sushi is fresh enough. I pray my smartphone upgrade works and my career path won't lose its perks. Please always let my health be great and don't let my condo depreciate. I pray my Starbucks doesn't close and my money market grows. And if I go broke before I wake, I pray my Volvo they don't take. That's humorous, but there really is a, a lot of truth in that. 
hope none of us in here this morning ever gets caught in the trap of materialism. Or our lives will be reduced to going to work, to buy the bread, to give us strength, to go to work, to buy the bread, to give us strength, to go to ad nauseum. Now, the prophet Jeremiah tried to get this over on the nation of Israel. And in a bold and sexually explicit metaphor, he captures their attention and he shows them the futility of the lives that they are living. He writes, You are a swift young camel running about senselessly in her ways, a wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion. That's pretty strong speech. He is saying, just stand up on a hill and look down on a young camel searching for a mate. You can see her restless searching in the footprints of the dust. All that movement, but going nowhere. Or look at the donkey in the wilderness sniffing the wind for a scent of a mate, no matter who. Unrestrained and without purpose except for one thing, the satisfaction of desire. That is what you look like, preaches Jeremiah. You are dominated by your appetites, and by your impulses. Your lives are completely empty of any kind of real purpose. You instead are frantic, busy, and rushing here and there, wherever the slightest possibility that you might find something to satisfy that craving. All I'm saying is just earning a living doesn't make a life. There is much more to living. Verse 25, please. Now, beside the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom, whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he looked at the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. I find this fascinating in light of the fact that, as we know from Matthew 13, that Jesus had four half-brothers and a bunch of sisters. Yet he completely bypassed his earthly bloodline and established a new family. And in so doing, he fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 69, 8, where it reads, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. You see, at this point, Jesus' brothers didn't even believe in him. So he turned to one who did. Well, why John? Well, no doubt it was because, partly because John was there, and he was the only male disciple willing to jeopardize his life by taking a stand at the foot of the cross. John still came to him in spite of his earlier failure of fleeing in the garden. And what did he find? Did Jesus rebuke him? Did he look with scorn on one who could not even watch with him for one short hour and then forsook him completely when the moment of testing came? Not at all. Jesus did not rebuke John on his return any more than he would rebuke Peter or any of the others later. Instead, he gave John an unmistakable privilege. He committed his mother unto John's charge. If you are one who has deserted Christ, do as John did. And as A.W. Pink admonishes in his remarks on these verses, he writes, 
Cease then your wanderings and return at once to Christ, and he will greet you with a welcome and cheer. And who knows what? He has some honoring commission waiting for you. But it teaches us more than that. Christ's plan for many of us will come in the form of even more responsibility. Now, we would like to think that the more that we love God, the less he will ask of us and the lighter that our burdens will become. But that is not necessarily so. If we truly love Christ, he will make use of that love. Jesus' care for John came in the form of a burden, but that burden was actually a great blessing. Now, it goes without saying that not all the pressures we bear come because we love people. Many come simply due to our own sin and stupidity. But unique responsibilities, however, are placed upon those who possess great love for the Lord. So some of our burdens, in fact, really are blessings. Or in the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus said, I thirst. He was enduring real physical suffering as he had a real human body. He had just emerged from three hours of darkness from nine until noon when he felt the wrath of God and the separation from God. I do think it intriguing that when you combine darkness, thirst, and isolation, you have a description of hell. And why was it dark for those three hours? I heard one old black preacher say it was because God can have two suns hanging in the sky at the same time. That's pretty good. Another picture of the suffering Savior comes from Psalm 22.6, which we touched on last week, where we read, read, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. Why worm? Why that unusual image? To understand this image, one must realize that the Hebrew word for worm comes to refer almost exclusively to a special kind of worm from which the, near, the people in the Near East derived a valuable crimson dye. It's much like the insect that exists today in Mexico, Mexico City called the cochineal. The worm known to the Hebrews was the tola. The dye formed from its blood released, was released when the animal was crushed. In Hebrew, the word for scarlet literally means the splendor of the tola. Now, the tola is referred to several times in Scripture. It is the worm that spoiled the manna in the wilderness. Also, the scarlet dye, the linen of the wilderness tabernacle, came from the blood of the tola. It is said of Saul in 2 Samuel that he dressed the women of Israel in scarlet. That is, he introduced such a period of prosperity 
that all their robes could be dyed. Now this image throws light upon Christ's thoughts. For when Jesus thought of himself as the Tola, he thought of himself as the worm who was going to be crushed for God's people. His blood was shed for us that we might be clothed in bright raiment. And even the unusual use of the branch of hyssop to extend the, sp the sponge of Christ's lips suggests scriptural parallels. Why? Because hyssop was a plant prescribed in Exodus 12 to be used in the application of the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorpost so that the death angel would have to pass by. So we mustn't ever forget that suffering marked the life of Christ. He had thirsted, he had hungered, he had ministered for three years without even a place to lay his head. He was scorned, abused, beaten, and now subjected to the horror and the indignities of the cross. No one ever suffered like Jesus did. Yet he says, now it is finished. As an aside, while that is true, we must always be careful to never try to establish a simple one-to-one -one relationship between a person's suffering and that same person's sin. It is true that we all at some point are going to suffer. It is true that at some point we are all going to sin. But our suffering is not necessarily for our sin nor in direct proportion to it. Therefore, the one who suffers most is not necessarily the greatest sinner, nor is one who suffers less that much more innocent. Just something to keep in mind. The last Adam has now redeemed the fall of the first Adam. Remember God said, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. They had sinned. So if God had put them to death in that moment, both physically and spiritually, banishing them from his presence forever, that would have been just. But that is not what we find. Instead, we find God first rebuking the sin and then wonder of wonders, performing a sacrifice as a result of which Adam and Eve are clothed with the skin of animals. Now, please, please realize this is the first death that anyone had ever witnessed. And it was enacted by God. As Adam and Eve looked on, they must have been horrified. So this is death, they must have said. How dreadful. Yet even as they recoiled from the sacrifice, they must have marveled as well. For what God was showing was that all they themselves deserved to die it was possible for another, in this case two animals, to instead die in their place. The animals paid the price for their sin. Now, moreover, they were now clothed with the skin of those animals as a reminder of that fact. It then says they gave Jesus some sour wine. Now, that drink of vinegar did not fully quench his thirst, but it did enable him to shout that voice of, with a voice of triumph, it is finished. Now, in English, that is three words. But in Greek, it is just one word, and it's the word to telestai. 
Yet this one word sums up the greatest work that has ever been done. Archaeologists have found Papyrus tax receipts with the telestai written across them, meaning paid in full. With Jesus' last breath on the cross, he declared the debt of sin canceled and completely satisfied. Spurgeon said, It would need all the other words that have ever been spoken or ever can be spoken to explain just this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. I cannot attain to it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. And it means it is finished, it stands finished, and it always will be finished. Once again, A.W. Pink writes, This was not the despairing cry of a helpless martyr. It was not an expression of satisfaction that the termination of his suffering had now been reached. It was not the last gasp of a worn-out life. No, rather was it the declaration on the part of the divine Redeemer that all for which he came from heaven to earth to do was now done. That all that was needed to reveal the full character of God had now been accomplished. And that by all that was required by the law before sinners could be saved had now been performed. And that the full price of our redemption was now paid. Or in the words of the hymn, Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was the cry, now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What does that mean to us this morning? It means that if you know Christ, your guilt is completely gone. And make no mistake about it, guilt is God's idea. He uses it the same way that highway engineers use rumble strips when we swerve off of the road. They call us back onto the road. Well, guilt does the same thing. Guilt alerts us to the discrepancies between what we are and what God desires. And it stirs repentance and renewal. In appropriate doses, guilt can be a great blessing. But in unmonitored and unhealthy doses, guilt is an unbearable burden. We cannot carry it. But God can. A graphic tradition from the Old Covenant shows us how he does this. 3,000 years ago, the Hebrew people were given an annual opportunity to watch their guilt literally be taken away. Each year, as part of the Day of Atonement, thousands of Jews would gather in front of the tabernacle. The priest would select two goats. The first goat he would sacrifice. The second goat was presented to the priest. He would then place his hands on the head of the goat and confess the sins of the people. Things like, we are cheaters, Lord, liars. We envy our friend's success. We covet our neighbor's wife. We ignore the poor. We worship idols and engage in evil acts. Down the list he went until all was confessed. Leviticus 16.21 says, He shall lay the sins on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. You can imagine as the people watched as that guide led the animal away, the pair would grow smaller and smaller and eventually disappear over the horizon. 
The people waited until the man reappeared empty-handed. Then there would be a great cheer and celebration. The object lesson was clear. God does not want guilt among his people. You can bet that some 10-year-old boy tugged on his mother's robe and said, Why, Mommy? Why did they send that goat away? That goat was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. The mother, always ready to seize the moment, would lower herself until she was eye level with him and explain, That is the point, my child. God uses the sinless to carry away the sins of the guilty. Or as Isaiah would write several hundred years later, the Lord has put on him the punishment for all the evil that we had done. Isaiah did not know the name of God's sin bearer, but we do. It is Jesus Christ. He came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. So that means this morning that if you are in Christ, your sin and your guilt are as far removed from you as the Bible says. And that is from the east until the west. That's infinity. He has done all the work. There is nothing left for us to do but to believe on him. It is finished. And as we finish today, I read about a Christian farmer who was deeply concerned over his unsaved neighbor who was a carpenter. And while he was always trying to explain the gospel, especially the sufficiency of the finished work of Christ, the carpenter would persist in believing that he also had to do something to merit that salvation. Well, one day the farmer asked him to make a gate for him. And when it was finished, he came for it and carried it away in his wagon. He hung it on a fence in his field and then arranged for the carpenter to stop by to make sure that it had been hung properly. Well, the carpenter came, but when he arrived, he was surprised to see the farmer standing there with a sharp axe in his hand. What's that for, he asked. I'm going to add a few strokes to your work, was the answer. But there's no need for that, the carpenter protested. The gate is perfect as it is. I did everything that was necessary. But the farmer took the axe and began to strike the gate anyway, keeping at it until a short while later, it was completely ruined. Look what you've done, cried the carpenter. You've ruined my work. Yes, said his friend. And that is exactly what you're trying to do. You are trying to ruin the work of Christ by adding your own miserable additions to it. God used that lesson to show the carpenter's mistake, and he was led to cast himself upon the finished work of Christ. So this morning, if you are still guilt-laden, come to the cross and lay your guilt down, for it is truly finished. Let us pray. And Lord, I can say it no better than that hymn, Hallelujah, what a Savior that you would look down upon us and come to this earth and give yourself to be tortured and killed knowing that we could, there's no way that we could save ourselves. You did all the work, Lord. All we have to do is to accept that, embrace it, and rejoice in it. I pray, Father, you know every heart in this room, every heart that will hear this sermon on the Internet, you know where each person is and you know what they need. 
no matter what it is, Lord, whether it's salvation, strength, or sanctification, the answer is you in all those things. So be to us what we need you to be. We ask in Christ's name, amen. This being the first Sunday of the month,